0: Hello and welcome to Medic in the Middle. Welcome to Medic in the Middle. Medic in the Middle is a podcast series hosted by myself, registered paramedic Tom Alderson. Uh, I work within the West Midlands. Medic in the Middle is a podcast series aiming to explore a range of different topics, issues and articles. This series will feature a range of guests from both in-hospital and pre-hospital specialties. Right, welcome to Medic in the Middle. Um, today we've got a um, special guest, Rob, from uh, the resource room. We've got Rob Fenwick with us. Rob, thanks so much for coming down and, and joining us on the show today. Absolute
1: pleasure, Tom. Thanks for the invite, buddy. Sorry it couldn't be uh, face-to-face, but obviously uh, there are many reasons why it's easier to do it over the uh, over the, the web, so to speak, nowadays, aren't there?
0: Man flu being one of them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Indeed, you don't want to spread that round. You don't Ooh. want to spread that round,
0: Right, um, for those of you who don't know, Rob is uh, an ACP, an advanced clinical practitioner uh, working within the West Midlands, um, and he deals day-to-day with acute cases coming into ED. I don't know if you want to tell us any more about your role, Rob, but I think those guys listening probably already know pretty much quite well who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, no, I think that, that's a good summary. I'll just to let you know, I'm a, so I'm a nurse by background. That's my that's my profession. Uh, I've done uh, a lot of ED work, uh, a, a bit of FEM, but uh, not for a few years, and now, you know, working in a uh, an ACP role. So that pretty much summarises where I, I do get a bit of where you're coming from pre-hospitally, uh, and I can certainly share some of the uh, headaches that come along with it as well from an ED perspective.
0: Brill, um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, hypothermia. Um, we're going to be running through a bit about hypothermia and what hypothermia is. We're going to be talking about primary and secondary hypothermia, uh, risk factors associated with the condition, different mechanisms involved in heat loss and homeostasis, and the effects it has on the body and the physiology involved in that. And some of the considerations we need to change for treatment to our patients um, right through the kind of mild to moderate all the way up to sort of cardiac arrest considerations. Rob, do you want to kick us off with a quick definition of hypothermia and what it is?
1: yeah Matt yeah I can certainly do that for you so I think just just before we kick off with a definition I just want to just sort of talk a little bit about how relevant it is and it certainly is relevant particularly at this time of year I mean it's very chilly this morning and I've just had to defrost the car etc etc oh
0: mate I've had the log I've had the log fire on today it's been wonderful I
1: did see the picture on the on Twitter it was looking way warmer in my house than it was in uh in, in your house sorry than it was in mine but you know this is one of those things that we don't see it all year round generally but when we do we See it in, and they tend to come in runs these cases. And it's really useful to revise this. And I certainly do every winter exactly what the management strategy of it's going to be because we do see it a lot over the winter. Um, you know, when you look at the statistics, it's quite difficult to pin down what the actual incidence of mortality is around it. But certainly, Scotland keep really good records, and it's around about 40 deaths per year that are attributed to hypothermia, which is down a little bit from where it was 10 to 20 years ago. But that's still quite a lot. And like I say, we don't know what. Uh, being covered for England and Wales there. Now, I just again, just before we go into it, so there are different types of hypothermia that you will hear talked about. So there's induced hypothermia, which is generally the term we use for cardiac surgery-induced hypothermia. There's therapeutic hypothermia, or it used to be called therapeutic hypothermia, which was for a post-cardiac arrest patient. But the one I think we're focusing in on today is really looking at the accidental hypothermia which is really most relevant to us as emergency care providers. So, yeah, specifically, obviously, you asked me about a definition, and you you will find them worded slightly differently out there in the literature, but the way to think of it is that it is an unintentional fall in core body temperature to less than 35 degrees Celsius. So that's the key figure you're looking for, less than 35 degrees Celsius, but it is worded differently depending on what text you read.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... As you mentioned, there's there's two types of hypothermia as well. We have primary hypothermia and secondary hypothermia. Uh, So primary is the hypothermia that tends to be involved with uh, environmental exposures with kind of no underlying medical conditions causing the disruption of temperature or thermoregulation. And then we've got secondary hypothermia, which results from an illness or um, things like underactive thyroids might be be a cause of this. Uh, or sepsis etc.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do see you do see a lot of it and I think that's that's part of the challenge is trying to work out whether someone with a low temperature as in a, a hypothermic has a primary hypothermia or a secondary hypothermia or a combination of both because it can often be quite difficult to ascertain especially if the patient's got altered cognitive function you know so they're confused you can't get a decent history you need to try and think of all the potential causes that might be out there you know medications infections etc etc so yeah it's certainly one of those things that it requires often a little bit of thinking about um, you know as a clinician in the ED to try and work out and establish what it is that's actually been the causative factor and then you can hopefully try and unpick what's going to get better
0: yeah i think um for us in the pre-hospital environment i think it's quite important isn't it If you have got those patients that are um well i think it's just using your clinical history and your clinical kind of suspicion and intuition um so if you have a patient where uh, a low thermometer is required and the ambulance service doesn't actually have one um i think it's important that we kind of just treat the patient as though they have got quite sort of advanced hypothermia if there's clinical suspicion based on the history and the risk factors involved and the examination that we perform Um, just to assume that they are going to be low because i think the lowest temperature readings in tympanics go down to 34 and tympanics can be a little bit um, hit and miss when it you are measuring temperatures in uh, quite acutely hypothermic patients can't they yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, you do see you do see a lot of it and I think that's that's part of the challenge is trying to work out whether someone with a low temperature as in a they're hypothermic has a primary hypothermia or a secondary hypothermia or a combination of both because it can often be quite difficult to ascertain especially if the patient's got altered cognitive function you know so they're confused you can't get a decent history you need to try and think of all the potential causes that might be out there you know medications infections etc etc so yeah it's certainly one of those things that it requires often a little bit of thinking about um, you know as a clinician in the ED to try and work out and establish what it is that's actually been the causative factor and then you can hopefully try and unpick what's going to get better
0: yeah absolutely um, I think as well because you guys in the ED have quite sort of uh, you have far more accurate uh, capabilities don't you for checking the patient's core temperatures um, as far as I'm aware you've got uh, well you've got the esophageal the bladder and then the, uh, the the rectal approach which we don't really touch too much in the pre-hospital setting <laughs>
1: yeah I mean I think you read a lot about that about the importance of um of a core temperature and I don't want to downplay that at all particularly in those patients that have got you know the moderate and severe types of uh, hypothermia but I must admit we we tend to rely most commonly on tympanic readings in those that have very mild uh, hypothermia so you know the 34 pluses 35 and a bit maybe Um, but yeah if you have those patients that are certainly sub 30 uh, you'll find them having some sort of invasive thermometer which you know there's pros and cons to all of the approaches um, but it you know I mean esophageal temperature probes is great if they're intubated but you don't find many of them that are uh, unless they're in cardiac arrest I think the um, the bladder ones is a good option if you can get hold of it and again the rectal probes well you, you have to be pretty careful because they have to go very deep to avoid sitting in a very cold piece of poo in a rectum that's also very cold and giving you false readings so um, yeah you, there's different weapons out there, but um, yeah, it depends what's available to you, I guess. But
0: real And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, or um, well, may or may not have mentioned, I can't remember where we're at now, but uh, <laughs> so GR Calc has a really good kind of subset for uh, defining the speed of onset of hypothermia. So we've got acute hypothermia, um, otherwise known as immersion hypothermia, which may occur quite rapidly um people can lose uh heat loss quite rapidly by falling into water this may be associated with drowning um or acute hypothermia may also occur probably not so much of a worry in the UK um but in a snow avalanche and uh, this may also be associated with asphyxia as well we also have uh, subacute hypothermia um uh, which i think you mentioned um or alluded to earlier which takes sort of place a little bit more slowly um, so this takes place when like, somebody's exercising and they're in a moderate cold environment and they get quite tired and not, not able to generate uh, enough heat. Um, and then we have chronic hypothermia, which is kind of the older people with the medical conditions uh, that uh, sort of don't allow them to self-regulate their temperature as effectively, which I think is probably more um, what you might be used to uh, in the ED setting with a kind of ongoing... Uh, complex medical history leads the patient to become kind of gradually hypothermic.
1: There are some, you know, clinical-based grading methods out there. Do you use those pre-hospital? Uh,
0: yes. Is that the things like the, the Swiss staging model for hypothermia?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, so it's the yeah the Swiss staging method. I mean, it was, it was published several years ago now, and there's a couple of little iterations of it out there, but they generally all come down to the idea that you can, you know, ascertain what temperature that patient is or how unwell they are by clinical signs and symptoms and uh, do you know what those bad boys are
0: yeah um it is um there's a sort of a an altered version of it in the gr calc guidelines so you have uh, stage one uh, where the patient is conscious and shivering which is going to be kind of our mild um, hypothermic patients that tend to have a temperature between 35 and 32 degrees celsius um we have stage two which is going to be sort of heading more to the moderate level of hypothermia, which the patient's going to have a a reduced consciousness level um, and they may or may not be shivering at this point and they're going to be kind of getting pretty cold now, uh, about 28 to 32 degrees um, they're likely to be sitting in, which again, as we kind of mentioned earlier, is going to be really difficult for those pre-hospital providers to measure accurately. Um, Stage three, um, the patient is going to be probably at this stage unconscious and they're going to still have vital signs, but they're going to be getting very, very poorly and unstable by this point. Um, 24 to 28 degrees Celsius is going to be their kind of ballpark figure that they're sat in. And then stage four, uh, below 24 degrees Celsius, um, the patient will most likely be dead and their vital signs will be absent
1: yeah, I think that's it's, it's good because it does it paints a picture in your mind, doesn't it? And I think, you know, without those, um, you know, expensive invasive devices, you can sort of get an idea for what you're dealing with. I think, you know, from a, from a clinical perspective, I think when you approach these patients, the, the three questions I sort of have in mind uh, when I approach them is, you know, number one, are they hypothermic? So as in, have they got a temperature of less than 35? If the answer to that is yes. Then the next thing is, okay, so are we dealing with a primary or a secondary hypothermia or a mixed bag? And then the next question after that is, well, okay, so categorise that into mild, moderate or severe because then you can start thinking about what treatments you might need to employ to try and get your patient warm again and uh, perfusing again.
0: Yeah, no worries. Um, just in case anyone is wondering what that chewing noise in the background is, if you can hear it, um, it's not me, I promise I'm not <laughs> chomping on a on a biscuit. I have got a puppy with me at the moment, I've got my one year old spaniel with me and he's chewing on a darn bone to keep him busy so um, I promise it's not me chewing on a, on a bone whilst we're recording <laughs> <laughs>
1: I can make no such promises, it may well be me chewing on a bone
0: <laughs> um, That brings us on to the mechanisms of heat loss and how we sort of maintain our own uh, homeostasis day to day. Um, So human beings are um, sort of endothermic creatures. Um, A lot of the heat that we um, generate in our bodies is provided from within our bodies um, through metabolic processes uh, such as the liver and sort of other metabolic processes that are going on concurrently. Um, The ways in which we lose heat um, are four mechanisms, conduction, convection, Radiation and evaporation. Um, have you got any notes on this, Rob, that you'd sort of like to kind of shout along, or do you want me to kind of just blast through it?
1: No, I mean, I think, you know, that's, that's absolutely completely correct. You know, you use your, you, you've got your. Um, metabolic uh, production of heat you've got your skeletal muscle of heat when you're thinking about how you're going to generate heat if you get cold you need to consider those you know um, I don't know do you want me to talk a little bit about just how we generally thermoregulate to keep ourselves warm from that perspective or so I mean there's from a thermoregulation perspective as you've picked up on you know we 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 need heat and we can generate that ourselves but there's three different mechanisms so involved in this so there's there's what's called afferent sensing There's then Central control of that, and then there's efferent responses to it. So, if I just walk you through that, so afferent sensing, so this works through um, basically receptors to determine if the body core temperature is too hot or too cold. So, these are thermoreceptors in the skin and mucous membranes predominantly. So, these then ping a load of messages up to what is the central control, which for our brain and for our bodies is the hypothalamus, um, which senses these changes in temperature control and then will act on that by putting in various efferent responses and that will be you know there are some metabolic cardiovascular and respiratory system changes etc which are probably best talked about when we uh, think about sort of the signs and symptoms if you like of hypothermia or what's going on but the most common things that you'll see uh, you know you'll see vasoconstriction which will reduce that heat loss there'll be then a shivering reflex which kicks in which results in the skeletal muscles you know contracting generating heat and then the erector pili muscles will contract and raise the hair follicles on the body to trap all that heat in that's being generated and the other side of that is there's also a sort of a behavioral 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 component to this efferent response which if intact and in the mild categories of hypothermia it is you know you'll find that you are putting more clothes on to generate more heat and to retain more heat um, which often when you get into the more moderate and severe categories that um, behavioral component can be lost as it can with the you know the the shivering and things like that so that's generally how you're going to find these patients in the early stages you know shivering you know hair standing up hopefully with lots of jackets on although that can become overcome quite quickly i was going
0: to say it sounds rather like me on a, on a cold night shift these past few weeks <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that is your that is your thermoregulation working perfectly tom
0: <laughs> so, you've, you've probably seen me at some point walking into the ed just wrapped up like a uh, the michelin man in my uh, in my big jacket and indeed vest on <laughs> um yeah, I think we should like. Should we delve into that physiology, uh, the pathophysiology of um, mm-hmm. hypothermia, a little bit more? You've, you've alluded to quite a lot of really interesting points there about kind of uh, the the responses we get with vasoconstriction and the uh, release of thyroid hormones um, and, uh, and adrenaline, etc. So, if, if we could, should we delve into that a little bit more? I've got kind of a few notes um, written down here. Yeah, go for um, it.
1: Go for it. We can we can work through it together. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of fill in the blanks where I kind of do draw a blank here. But, um, <laughs> I'm not sure. So <laughs> I'm not sure I'm the <laughs> man
1: to fill in those blanks. But I, I'm sure we can get through it together, Tom.
0: Yeah. So as you mentioned, hypothermia leads to that immediate response of uh, like the auto- autonomic nervous system. Um, so we get a delayed endocrine response and a lot of shivering. So the idea of shivering is to kind of increase that metabolic um, that rate. So the, at the maximal point of shivering... Um, It does say somewhere in the textbook I was reading the other day, so it does increase uh, the sort of basal metabolic rate up to four times at the maximum point of shivering, um, all aimed at kind of reducing heat loss. Um, So blood also becomes quite viscous as well, and you get that vasoconstriction, uh, which suppresses myocardial contractility. Um, You also, at this point, get um, kind of an increased amount of... um, of diuretic kind of response don't you because you get you get like a through that vasoconstriction you get um the lesser amount of antidiuretic hormones you get that cold diuresis that goes on which means the patient tends to wee quite a lot
1: very true it does indeed yeah that vasoconstriction basically induces renal dysfunction and cold diuresis due to those levels of adh uh, falling so you get lots and lots of dilute urine coming out so they get quite volume depleted relatively quickly, which makes things worse, obviously. Uh,
0: they also get a surge of adrenaline and neuroadrenaline and cortisol, all aimed at kind of trying to speed up that metabolic rate. Um, so as a result of this, you often get uh, an initial increase in heart rate and blood pressure. Um And then sort of as they start to go along the stages of hypothermia, you kind of see this drop, don't you, as you get like sort of below 28 degrees, you get kind of depolarization of the pacemaker cells, and this is where you start to see um, arrhythmias, Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. So touch upon it now, what what sort of things are you going to be seeing on the ECG with these patients that are kind of uh, moderate to severe hypothermic? There's things like um, J-waves, isn't there, and um, the Osborne J-waves on the ECG, and they might um, kind of start having pvcs
1: yeah so i think yeah af uh, is is by far and away the most common one that i see in those that are sort of in the 32 30 to 32 range um and then you know it starts to deteriorate you might well pick up on early as uh, osborne waves or j waves which will become more prominent which is as as with everything the more pronounced the the hypothermia becomes the more prominent the symptoms become um, so you know i think the way i think of it with hypothermia is that you have that initial you know, attempt by the body to to really overcome uh, that hypothermia or that that cold or that heat loss that's there, and then after that, what you have is you have a progressive slowing of pretty much everything as those mm-hmm. initial efforts to keep warm stop, and the patient really. <laughs> you know becomes one with their surrounding environment so yeah, you know, they're able to <laughs> mount a, a response but that after that they start QRS to. QRS
0: conflicts just getting wider and wider. <laughs> exactly
1: exactly man that's exactly it so yeah you do uh, as I say with arrhythmias in the mild stages it's almost always AF um, you know um, whether or not that's been there prior to them getting cold you can't tell half the time but you know then you get the one in the QRS and then the J waves and then obviously the big thing that we worry about is the risk of you know um, serious ventricular arrhythmias uh, which is generally when they get really cold but yeah everything slows down uh, as they get colder
0: yeah absolutely you've got I mean they say at a temperature below 25 degrees the cardiac output actually decreases by up to 45% um, yeah. a, and you get re- like reduced perfusion to the cerebral blood flow um, that causes the body's core to sort of drop further as well can't it and then then, mm. you, that, then like you said you once, once you're kind of at that temperature you've seen all kinds of strange arrhythmias and Um, atrioventricular sort of node disturbances which then eventually lead us to sort of patient fall into cardiac arrest unfortunately
1: yeah absolutely i mean and one of the things that they talk about is you know a uh, a reduction in cerebral metabolic um, rate uh, which is potentially um, a beneficial thing but that generally is only beneficial if that cooling occurs really really quickly which i'm sure we'll touch on later when we talk about cardiac arrest but in these patients that have a slow gradual deterioration over you know hours to days uh, it's often not enough to protect those neurons in that brain and actually um, you know there is significant damage that will occur over the period that it takes them to get cold so yeah not
0: great So there's a few um, as we mentioned earlier there's a few risk factors that is associated with accidental hypothermia Uh, we've got uh, quite often um, particularly me and yourself working in the emergency medicine kind of setting um, we're going to be seeing people who are hypothermic that have sort of been affected by trauma um, trauma, traumatic conditions that are affecting their kind of thermoregulation and their ability to sort of thermoregulate um, these patients Um, sort sort of trauma patients are going to be I don't know, people who have burns, for example, if they've had falls and they've had a long lie. Um, quite a lot of patients who are hypothermic um, have also drank alcohol as well. So when we do drink alcohol, it causes this peripheral vasodilation and it also impairs our, our shivering response. Um, and then hypoglycemia also uh, has a direct effect on the hypothalamus as well, which also affects thermoregulation. And this predisposes the intoxicant patients to hyperthermia as well um obviously you see quite a lot of people present to the ed as well don't you rob with kind of traumatic um complaints that are going to is it going to affect their their, their thermoregulation i think it's just been aware of this in terms of uh, problems it might cause for their you know their, their coagulopathies as well
1: yeah absolutely yeah you get it. i mean you know it's a big risk factor you know the tr- the the triad of death isn't it or whatever it's called now the
0: quad Something. No, of I think death, the, the trauma triangle. I think it was called. No, it's the trauma diamond. That was what I heard last time. That's it. The trauma diamond. I agree with all of it. But I way. prefer That's... that. It sounds so much more sparkly.
1: It does, doesn't it? I mean, I think yeah. You know, hypothermia has as is almost universally associated, associated, not causative, but associated with bad outcomes in pretty much every condition you've got. At least in the acute setting. When it's in a controlled setting, it's slightly different. But essentially, for all of us in emergency care, we don't want our patients to be cold they need to be warm not hot but warm uh, you know the classic risk factor that I see really for most patients is el- is being old so you know the elderly generally due to their sort of decreased intravascular volume decreased cardiac function are just so much more vulnerable uh, and if they are and are more susceptible and obviously have more comorbidities and have more medications that can affect it and things so uh, they're definitely that is definitely a risk factor for me but yeah you're quite right burns you know I mean you think about spot high spinal cord injuries so above t6 where you lose your you know sympathetic outflow so therefore you're completely warm and chucking out heat when you can't regulate yourself it's there's lots of it around there but yeah as a as a general rule i think you you know you have you got an acute patient you need them to be at least normothermic um, and you should take measures to avoid them becoming cold because it's as i say generally associated with badness in everything that's ever been studied
0: yeah, and then sort of down the medical route, there's a few medical conditions, isn't there, um, that we, well, the, the kind of the standard, um, what's the word, kind of crop-up presentations we see in the, in the emergency setting, things like CVAs, heart yeah. failure, diabetes, yeah. um, MIs, um, pneumonia and, and septicemia or, or sepsis, um, or just infection generally, like you said, and particularly in these older patients who are going to be more uh, susceptible to, to some of these conditions it's just being aware isn't it that the, those those acute presentations can uh, induce or certainly be embedded with a, a sort of a, an overtone of um, hypothermia yeah. yeah 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 100% agree with that um could you just chat us through quickly um some of the uh, the background physiology um and the effect of abnormal body temperature on kind of uh The blood, um, and potentially like the the theoretical changes that we do get in pH. Um, I know that there's it's it's not always um, set in stone, but the the theoretical kind of aspect of the changes in pH and maybe some of the blood gas kind of problems that we do get um, upset with hypothermia and maybe hyperthermia as well.
1: Yeah, well, I mean I can try and by no means a subject matter expert on this and you know I will doff my cath- um, doff my cap uh, in acknowledgement to that and say that the you know the intensive care guys are far more knowledgeable but I mean you know the essentially the solubility of you know oxygen and carbon dioxide in water varies with temperature and you know decreased temperature will cause increased solubility of both oxygen and carbon dioxide now yeah, so Basically, what this means is that um, in hypothermia, you get decreased PCO2, so partial pressure of carbon dioxide, and decreased uh, PaO2, so decreased partial pressure of oxygen. And that will also cause the pH of the blood sample to increase because of increased solubility. So in these cases, very often you'll see uh, decreased partial pressures of oxygen, carbon dioxide, but an increased pH because of increased solubility. Now, the other thing is it also shifts the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve to the left, which means that uh, there is altered oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production. So essentially, it messes around with it quite a bit, so it increases that hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen, I should say, so it holds it.
0: So, yeah, so if there's there's a leftward shift in the um, dissociation curve, um, just for those who don't know what it is, that just means that there's a reduced demand, isn't there, for oxygen? I'm correct. Yeah, so right, it, the
1: hemoglobin has got an increased affinity for it is probably the better way to it it binds to yeah. it better. So I think the, the 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 difficulty that I have with these when I when I sort of think about the theoretical measurements of these carbon of if these blood gases not carbon dioxide sorry of blood gases is that very often in the acute setting to adjust for that isn't actually required so there is a way of adjusting for temperature on your blood gas machine um so what you can do is you can set the temperature of the patient to be 35 or 30 or whatever it is and it will calibrate itself or it will give you results that would be if you like what it was like if it was normal Um, but the difficulty is actually what you want is it's not about that one reading that you have as per se or that's not important for me it's about the trend and the direction that these blood gases are going in so in almost all recommendations you will find that you know it's recommended that you run a blood gas at 37 degrees or you presume it's 37 and then what you take is you take trends of that blood gas management throughout your patient journey so you know at the start of resuscitation or when they're awake and then go into cardiac arrest or whatever it might be but basically that trend is far 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 more important than uh, just getting a one-off reading and making a judgment on that and the other
0: yeah it's not it's not quite cut and blow is it no
1: no 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 and you know if you read a textbook it will make it out as though it is and it will make it will make good sort of sense in your brain but what it will do is it will throw you off when you get to actual real life practice because what you also don't know is you don't know about the underlying pathophysiology for why that patient has become hypothermic because the vast majority of the cases as i said that we see are secondary cases and that can be due to anything, you know, in terms of medical problems and, you know, you don't know what's been going on with their acid-base status prior to that collapse and then them becoming hypothermic and so on and so forth. So there's lots of factors that muddy that water, whereas if you read a textbook it's all very clear and you know, an anaesthetist will be able to explain it to you wonderfully as to how it works with regard to the gas laws and things, but if you're down and dirty and working in an ED, what matters really is about if your patient's getting better and trending those gas readings um, rather than taking it as a one-off, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's not quite like I say. It's not. Um, unfortunately, the patients aren't always uh, in an idyllic presentation, are they? And they're not always presenting like a textbook. So it's just having that um, individual approach for each patient, isn't it? And like you said, hundred percent. Not not kind of uh, just treating them like a I don't know like an algorithm all the time. Um, should we go on to kind of treatment of mild to moderate patients and what we're going to do for these patients now um, that are sort of presenting to us with sort of moderate hypothermia? Yeah, definitely. So the first thing we want to do, we talked about like uh, the four mechanisms of heat loss. Convection, conduction, radiation and evaporation were the four mechanisms. So essentially it's just kind of trying to use those as a guide to figure out what's caused our patient to be hypothermic and therefore we can kind of base some of our treatment off that. So um, a lot of these patients are hypothermic um, and sort of become hypothermic due to their environmental exposure. We want to try and remove that patient from that environment and get them to somewhere warm, somewhere sheltered. Um, As we mentioned, their clothing has a potential to be wet because they probably... um, if they've been lying on the floor for a long time, there's a there's a there's a high likelihood that that cold duresis has taken place, and they may have um, sort of wet themselves through. So getting them out of that wet clothing, and then just trying to gradually um, rewarm them in a in a warm environment. Get get some blankets yeah. on them, get some foil blankets as well to kind of uh, inch help insulate them. Um, we can use hot compresses as well, can't we? Kind of over the the larger vessels in the body, um, and that can kind of be. Whatever it comes to hand, can't it? I know, like in the the pre-hospital setting, bits and bobs are normally kind of—it's normally sort of improvising a little bit. Mm, Yeah. Um, So you know, whatever comes to hand is not going to, obviously, not going to cause the patient any harm. We don't want to be frying their their groins (laughs) or their their their, their, uh, carotids with burning hot items, but just warm items that we can get and place in the axilla, the groin or kind of over the the larger vessels just to try and warm that patient up a little bit Um, is there kind of any merit Rob in um, or any risk to gradual rewarming versus uh, rapid rewarming because I know some people are a bit jumpy aren't they Um, we shouldn't be rewarming them really 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 quickly we should be doing it gradually or is there any, there any merit or risk associated with that So
1: I know, I, yeah, I know what you're saying. So, you know, the thing that you're talking about really is this thing called after drop or, you know, which is basically you, you, you get a drop in core body temperature during rewarming as a consequence of peripheral vasodilatation um and you know th- the theory behind it being that you warm them up too quickly they get peripherally vasodilated and then what happens is you get this big rush of blood and then it all comes back centrally and then they get really cold again and then they get this you know further drop in temperature and you know you'll see it documented in various bits of anesthetic literature and things like that but in reality i've never seen it in you know Know, in clinical practice uh, and you know whenever I've read about it it's usually not significant and I think you know the what we talk about is the methods that we're using in either an ambulance or in an ed just doesn't allow patients to rewarm that quickly because if you think what we're talking about here is passive methods so this is you know where the patients you know you're keeping them dry in a warm environment you know chucking some blankets around them and allowing them to walk around and do a little bit of exercise as in you know squatting or doing push-ups if they're able to anything that generates some heat well you're not going to get a massive raise in your temperature it's not going to go up by you know five degrees in 15 minutes and cause this afterdrop. it's just never going to happen so i totally get the theoretical benefit to it but you know i don't think in reality you know in clinical practice you're ever going to rewarm them fast enough to cause this effect
0: yeah definitely um if we can as well like some, some of the patients uh like you said they're going to be quite volume depleted so it's it's it, we've talked about passive rewarming and uh can we talk a little bit about kind of fluid resuscitation and and uh, the warm giving them warm fluids is obviously going to be of benefit to these patients, isn't it? But like, can we give them? Is there a danger in giving them sort of too much fluid? Are we going to be causing any, any sort of iatrogenic injury through that in terms of overload or et cetera?
1: Well, it's difficult. It's a, I mean, it's. A you know it's a Goldilocks sort of approach I think as with most things in medicine you know you, you've got to think a little bit about the patient that's in front of you so um, you know most of these patients will be volume deplete through cold diuresis and through the the initial if you like what's led them to be collapsed for whatever reason you know alcohol of their volume deplete you know their septic their volume deplete they've had you know diarrhea and vomiting their volume deplete Um but you've got to think a little bit about um, you know, not giving them too much. So I think some fluid is always a good idea. I, I think you need to think just a little bit about what your aim is with your fluids. So um, there is no good evidence that warmed fluids um, warm patients up. Um, so that's not going to get your patients hotter. Um, all it will do is it will stop them getting colder. Um so, you know, essentially you you're not giving it for that purpose. The the things that you're looking to do, I think, that are that are good. So we've talked about the passive stuff. You've got like peripheral what we call active warming so this is like chemical heat pads and stuff radiant heat which is particularly good for really cold kids you know neonates and stuff like that Yeah or, we've
0: started carrying those on the ambulances now actually. have you and, Fantastic um, I Did yeah I did actually use one the other day for, for a hypothermic patient Ah oh, um, nice just 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 cracking one and um, just letting it heat up, and it did actually it did actually work a treat. Yeah. Um, just like I said, just those warm compresses in in between the patient's legs or in their axilla. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it worked fantastically actually.
1: Yeah, they're really well. They they're theoretically really good. I don't think I've ever seen them studied. I'm not sure I'll, you will ever see them studied. But yeah, they 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 have good you know face validity, don't they? I think there's, there'd be no reason to think that they weren't a good idea. Um, the other thing, you know, when you get into hospitals, you think about forced air warming blankets. So obviously, the, the bear hugger is the is the one that we tend to see used um and you know what you tend to get with that is so you know a warming blanket you'll get about two degrees an hour increase in temperature um you is, know, that shivering. A, is that
0: with is that with a bear hugger is that just with blankets yeah. yeah
1: so so that's with a what we call a forced air warming blanket so with your your do you remember we talked about so the the passive rewarming methods? so you know shivering keeping them dry warm environment blankets, warm hat and stuff like that, that'll get you about one and a half degrees an hour. So that's pretty good. You know what I mean? That's that's not going to cause your patient any harm and that's only going do to them, do them well. You know, if you add a warming blanket to that, then you'll get an additional two degrees, you know, Celsius on top of that per hour. Um, but then obviously, you know, there are more invasive methods you can use if your patient is more unwell and requires warming rewarming more quickly. But for the vast majority of the cases that you and I see Tom, I mean, you know, the passive stuff is absolutely amazing and you know if you can add some peripheral stuff in you're doing your patients some real favours and actually just spending some time and like you say removing them from the environment removing wet clothing if you can do and get them into dry clothing is by far and away the best thing that you're going to do for these patients.
0: It kind of comes back to that old chestnut of just doing the basics and doing the basics well, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it does totally like, <laughs> but I think when when you are in kind of a uh, uncontrolled environments that are quite uh, cognitively demanding or you're stressed or you know long shifts and yeah. you know it's been a busy 12 months hasn't it with, with an increased workload of the staff anyway but it's just yeah trying to keep that that focus and that clear clarity of mind and right do the basics and do the basics well because you you know just remembering to get them out them cold clothes just those simple things isn't it that we can yeah. in the heat at the moment I guess you know you've got other things going on can be um deprioritized by some people and it's just doing the basics and doing the basics well
1: yeah absolutely and i think there, there are some exceptions to those rules so you'll talk about like mountain rescue scenarios whereby you, you know you haven't got dry clothes or the ability to get them and actually you know sealing the patient within a you know a completely sealed bag well not obviously not their face because that would be really bad for them but you know (laughs) if you're able to completely seal them then what you can do is you can you can avoid a lot of the heat loss that comes with it so you can leave them in wet clothing but i think for most of us you know if we've got a dca available you know getting them undressed getting them well covered over getting the cab really warm you know using some of these cooling um sorry warming um, pads they're all great things and great ideas for our patients yeah
0: absolutely um I'd like to move on to cardiac arrest management as well now, if we can. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Let's let's chew into that. That. Uh, <laughs>
1: okay, chew into that bad boy. That bad boy.
0: Out. Yeah, let's chew into that bad boy. Um, so, yeah, there's a few considerations in there for cardiac arrest management. The basic um, kind of few that we need to just remember as part of our ALS algorithm. Um, Is that you know we're we're only gonna if this patient isn't a shockable rhythm, we are only gonna shock the patient three times. um, If they are um, of a temperature sort of less than 30 degrees, yeah, um, just to prevent any damage to the myocardium, as you know, if they've got sort of persistent arrhythmias going on, so we'll give them three shocks. And if VF um, or a shockable rhythm persists, no further shocks uh, will be given until the patient is sort of more. Than or, or or well more than thirty degrees Celsius if we like yeah um sort of as well we're going to be uh, giving well we're, we're going to withhold uh, um, ALS drugs if the patient is below thirty degrees Celsius and there's a couple of reasons for that isn't there um, I know one of the, one of the reasons is because if the patient is um, quite vasoconstricted um, we're going to be pumping them sort of full of loads and loads of this sort of adrenaline and amiodarone and all that sorts of stuff and then when they do warm up like you've alluded to earlier and they get that kind of vasodilation we're going to be hitting the heart with kind of like you know yeah. three four adrenaline um to an already quite upset and irritable myocardium aren't we? and then that's obviously not going to be very uh, conducive towards their arrhythmias they're no. going to present in um and then the other reason for that as well um is just that these drugs don't actually metabolize very well at, at those kind of low temperatures either
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: completely agree with that. Um, just doubling the dosage of adrenaline as well. Once they are over thirty degrees, um, just doubling the intervals that were sort of given the, the those drugs. So adrenaline will be given instead of every four minutes, um, just double that to every eight minutes. And like we said, in in, in pre-hospital environments, this is just going to be taking um, that history and that clinical suspicion of is that patient below thirty because we're not going to be able to actually monitor that without panics. So just uh, keeping in mind, as it's a patient. Died as a result of sort of being cold, or have they have they died and then sort of become cold? That sort of thinking, yeah, and that kind of links in with with uh, any potential kind of terminating resource. And these patients is also actually quite uh, tricky, isn't it as well?
1: yeah i think you know that's that's really the key question that you you've got when once you've got your you know your als established you know as i say because you know there's always the the initial lead in where you're getting everything set up and you're starting your resuscitation attempt and you're getting iv access and you're getting your you know your tubes or your lmas or whatever it might be in there and you're getting established but once you're established the next thing really is about you know you're trying to work out are they cold and dead or are they dead and then they got cold because they're two very different things in terms of outcome and you know it's a question of how quickly they've become cold if they've got cold and dead because to be neuroprotective so these like wonderful case reports that you see of like you know people surviving you know with core temperatures of like 13 degrees 1, 3 degrees Celsius it happens fast and it needs to happen fast and um, to be cerebrally protective and you know, unfortunately, that's really unlikely in most parts of the UK uh, because we're not really a country that gets temperatures that cold, believe it or not. <laughs> we're talking like, you know, Scandinavia, you know, Arctic, you know, Canada, blah, 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 blah. Um, so you need to try and establish that. And that's, um, it can be really difficult to do. Uh, but it all comes down to the history, I think, you know, and um, that's the thing.
0: Yeah. For sure. Um, Also, we need to be assuring, don't we, that clinicians are sort of swapping around with CPR every couple of minutes because these patients are going to have potentially quite, um, well, more so rigid chests, aren't they? And it's going to be harder to achieve good quality chest compressions and we need to sort of account for for fatigue as well. So either swapping chest compressions every couple of minutes between clinicians or ideally getting um, some form of mechanical uh, chest compression device like a Lucas Tessine. (laughs) um or um getting to a center that is able to provide that as well
1: yeah i think you know that that's definitely a consideration i think that if you've got a patient who has a true hypothermic cardiac arrest they're going to need a lot of resources and you know um a a mechanical chest compression device is a very very good use of that device for these uh these cases um yeah i think that you know you um yeah, you definitely need to be considering that. And ultimately the big question, which I think is something that, you know, is definitely worthy of discussion, is, you know, where you go with these patients and where you take them. Um, because obviously if they're cold you're not going to be able to uh to call them because they're not dead until they're warm and dead in inverted commas.
0: Could you could you quickly just talk us through the ECMO is something that's thrown around quite a lot. Um just having a good well, just having a basic understanding of what it is, and you know, because certain centres provide it, don't they? Um, you mentioned about where to go. Yeah, so I mean, I think,
1: I think that there's there's a, two different sort of questions there. So I think what you've got is there's a it's what you're trying to provide. So ECMO is one thing. So extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. I don't do it at any of the hospitals that I work at. Um, the closest one is Leicester, I think my understanding of it is which is like as in i know hardly anything about it is that you know you stick a you know a cannula into a big vessel in the groin you suck oxygen out you, you suck oxygen out you don't suck oxygen <laughs> out so that'd be a bad idea you suck blood out you oxygenate it and you put it back in um so therefore you bypass the entire system um but again i mean i don't i don't know a lot about it because i don't use it
0: yeah. yeah, like I said, the only one that I'm aware of is Leicester. I think.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure that they're entirely set up to receive hot patients, if that makes sense, as in, you know, a patient in cardiac arrest. So so I think, you know, what you're looking for really when you look to your decision-making is you look towards a centre that can rewarm your patients quickly uh, in a reliable fashion. And there are different hospitals that will be able to provide services like this and you know if you look at the the evidence around what how quickly you can warm patients up well you can do something called peritoneal lavage so as in you can warm the sort of outside of the abdominal contents and that will get you about three degrees celsius per hour so say for example you've got a patient who's i don't know 25 degrees celsius and in cardiac arrest well they're going to be probably still in cardiac arrest for another two hours doing that um if you do something called thoracic lavage so you can put a chest tube in um two chest tubes uh, or chest drains in either side uh, on one side of the chest and you can run warmed fluids into the thoracic cavity and that will get you an increase in rate of about 3 to 6 degrees per hour Or you can put your patient on bypass, so cardiac bypass or ECMO, which will get your patient warmer by sort of 10 to 20 degrees an hour. Well, I think it's 9 to 18, I think it says, but, you know, a big amount Mm -hmm. per hour. But I think in your mind you need to think about from a pre-hospital perspective, if I get a patient who is in hypothermic cardiac arrest, where am I going to take them and where is going to be able to provide those things? Because... Not every hospital will be able to do that um, in a timely manner. Um, So, I mean, my suggestion would be that, you know... um, large major trauma centres will probably be able to provide all of these services. Um, I don't advocate you bypass them but I think if you had a discussion with your local trauma network um, you know CCP or whoever sits on your desk about the fact you've got a hypothermic cardiac arrest and is there any potential to take them to a tertiary centre then that might be something that's you know leads to beneficial outcomes but again it depends on your local area really but it's not just about the bypass or the ECMO it's about what else your local hospitals can provide because most can provide a reasonable degree of warming but most will find it challenging to rewarm a patient really quickly uh, which is what these patients in cardiac arrest need
0: um Should we just talk a little bit about hyperstimulation and just being careful, I suppose, with the hypothermic patient in terms of uh, moving them and just stimulation, if you like, of them? Because that can have some unwanted side effects, can't it?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, essentially, I I must admit I haven't seen this in clinical practice, but I, you know you don't see huge amounts of patients that are really cold. But definitely, if your patient's less than thirty two degrees, you need to be super careful with how um, how well you need to be super careful with moving them. Basically, you've got a very irritable uh, myocardium which becomes more and more. Irritable, the colder they get, and uh, you know if you stimulate that too vigorously, you're likely to trigger some very nasty arrhythmias, as in shockable arrhythmias, so VF, VT, and things like that. Now, the risk is probably not that big, but um, you know it's very difficult to pin down a number. So I think as a as a general approach to these patients, if they're cold, you want to do everything very gently. You want to avoid excessive movement, and you want to try and avoid any un you stimulation whatsoever now I think one of the things that we you know, you talked about is you know um, endotracheal intubation and that is something that is potentially a stimulant but what you're doing I think in these patients of cardiac or in that are in cardiac arrest is they're likely to have prolonged resuscitation attempts and what you need to do is you need to optimize multiple things and all of the studies that have been around you know lma versus et tubes in cardiac arrest they haven't included big numbers of patients that are in special circumstances like this um so i think that you know in the absence of data it makes good sound sense to have an early intubation so an endotracheal intubation by someone that's skilled to do it that you know doesn't involve any delays and is skilled in laryngoscopy so they are as gentle as possible and if that involves calling you know Know, critical care teams to do that then i think that's absolutely um absolutely perfect to do because as i say the, these patients are likely to have resuscitation temps that go on into hours and you know a a, a closed circuit with an endotracheal tube is what they're going to need
0: brilliant um should we talk a little bit about um Sort of, it's quite a grey area, but the futility in, in in CPR and the futility in resuscitation of of the hypothermic patient, because the although we kind of have mentioned that the patient's not dead until they're warm and dead, um, we've talked a bit about is the patient sort of has they died of a result of being cold, or have they died and then become cold? Um, you know, it's just talking about that futility in commencing, isn't it? Or you know, it's certainly probably going to be one more probably more so for an in hospital perspective isn't it because um pre-hospitally um it's it's one of those isn't it if there is any doubt whatsoever you are just going to start and give the patient the best chance possible but at the same time it's balancing in that with their um a dignity aspect isn't it and mm. trying to balance it with the common sense of is is this resuscitation futile um yeah it's just yeah I think
1: it is. It's difficult, and I, I'm not sure. Have you got anything? Is there anything explicit in JR Calc about it with regard to stopping? I don't know if there is. Um,
0: I uh, think no. I think it's more so. You know, you are. If they are showing other signs of role criteria, then then great. Um, okay. but if, if you're in a position where um, they are are well, I think the only thing that's in JR Calc is it, it goes on to say you know if there's uh, if you think the resuscitation is going to be futile. Um, and um and I think the only way you could uh justify that sort of uh course of action would be if the patient's chest is just completely uncompressible yeah I've read um, and that, there's yeah. no and there's no kind of uh mechanical device that can be either quickly brought to scene or the, or you are out in the sticks and you are you know very far away from from a, a center that could provide that, yeah.
1: I think they you know they, they talk about and I've read around this they talk about things like you know if the death's obviously due to things like lethal injuries or you know a clearly fatal illness or uh, particularly with regard to avalanche you know prolonged asphyxia uh, and I guess probably with drowning would come into that as well then those are absolute you know futile conditions where you're not going to get that patient back but quite rightly as you say you know if that chest isn't compressible well you know there's not a huge amount you can do there unfortunately um when they get into hospital i mean i think we we have the luxury of um of more manpower in many cases and we have the um you know potential to have more discussions around what might be appropriate so those discussions will be ongoing as the resuscitation is but as a general marker for this not dead until they're warm and dead well you know, there isn't a hard cutoff, but certainly in my mind, you know, somewhere between 30 degrees and 32 degrees, you'd expect someone to be demonstrating, you know, a perfusing rhythm or a potentially perfusing rhythm um, at that stage. Uh, and if you're still, you know, having no signs of any, you know, cardiac output, you know, they've got, you know, they're in a systole, have been, they've been, you know, they're very slow to warm up. I think you then need to presume that this is futile. Um with regard yeah. I Which think r-
0: well well yeah, carry, on, carry on sorry no, no, no.
1: I think with with regard to the actual the evidence around when you can stop so there hasn't been any sort of like you know randomised controlled trials but there's reasonable um, retrospective data that you know high uh, serum potassium so potassiums uh, will be you know routinely collected as part of your blood gas management um, and you know if you have high levels of serum potassium then that is essentially always associated with bad outcomes Comes and as a cutoff, we generally use 7.0 um, as being our cutoff. So the normal ranges will be sort of like 3.5. Um so the normal ranges will be um, less than 5.5 sorry not less than 3.5 that would be very low less than 5.5 but once it creeps up to over 7 basically that's going to be associated with you know cell death and actually that serum potassium has been leaking from all of those cells so um, yeah high serum potassium with a patient who doesn't look like they're going to get better and uh, you know is all fitting with a very poor prognosis but You know there will be cases where this is a case-by-case you know senior level discussion between multiple people it's not one person who's going to make a call on that if you bring them to hospital because um, as I say there are lots of case reports where people have survived when they've been cold so um, you just need to make sure you're not stopping on one of those that is potentially a survivor but you do need to look for them very carefully
0: yeah, just the only point I've got to um, <clears throat> add extra to that is just uh, just in the GL Calc guidelines that we've got in front of me, it Just when we get into these patients and we are trying to make those decisions as well, um, just make sure when we're looking for signs of life, we just extend the period that we do stop and look for signs of life for up to a minute oh, yeah, in these hypothermic patients. Yeah, just making sure that we take that a little bit longer um, to a, to assess their initial signs of life.
1: Yeah, I think in hospital, the well, also potentially there's a role for point of care ultrasound to actually check for to actually see if there's cardiac wall motion as well, um, you know, as a as a marker for a low flow state versus a no flow state. But um, yeah, I think just you know a prolonged pulse check for up to a minute rather than the sort of ten seconds that you generally would use in these patients that are cold is a good way to go.
0: Brilliant. Um, Well, I think that brings us to the kind of end of this podcast. So to summarise, we've kind of looked at um, a definition of hypothermia um, and a bit about what it is and different classifications of hypothermic patients. We've talked about primary and secondary hypothermia. Uh, We've talked about the physiological effects of hypothermia on the body, um, how to treat these patients through the different stages of kind of mild, moderate, and then severe. Um, we've talked about the differences and the special considerations we need to give for patients in cardiac arrest and then the modifications to our ALS algorithm as part of that. And then we just kind of touched on the basis of utility um, of um, CPR and resuscitation in these patients. Um, Rob? Thanks so much for coming down, mate, and well, I say coming down. Um, <laughs> with the thankful flade of uh, modern day technology, um, we're able to do, to uh, just do this podcast with well from 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 a distance, which is which is great. But thanks for uh, thanks for agreeing to uh, have a chat with us on the show. It's really um, it's really great to have you on.
1: And no problems at all, buddy. Thanks very much for the invite. It's been fun.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, stay tuned. And we'll see you next time.